Hello, friends. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden. Each week, we examine the magical thinking that runs our lives. From rubbing a rabbit's foot to never toasting with water, there are plenty of ways to ward off evil and invite good luck. But some superstitions have nothing to do with luck and everything to do with death. Tonight, you're in for a chilling episode, one that involves a generous serving of body horror. It's not for the faint of heart, so please exercise caution for listeners under 13. This superstition isn't a talisman so much as an explanation for a medical phenomenon. We all shiver when we're cold, but that's not the only thing that could cause such a reaction. Could it be a spike in adrenaline, low blood sugar, a particularly unnerving noise? Or maybe, just maybe, it's a sign that someone or something is walking over your grave. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, we bury a body and lose a grave. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In Harper Lee's coming-of-age novel To Kill a Mockingbird, just before Scout Finch and her brother Jem are attacked by an enemy of their father, their aunt Alexandra catches a sudden chill. She reassures the children when they ask what's wrong, Oh, nothing, nothing. Somebody just walked over my grave. Lee set her novel in the fictional town of Maycomb, Alabama, and Aunt Alexandra's use of the saying shows its power in the American South. But this notion isn't confined to any one region. You can find it in nearly any English-speaking culture. The phrase first appeared in print in Jonathan Swift's A Complete Collection of Genteel and Ingenious Conversation in 1738, but it reflects a much older belief system dating back to the Middle Ages, the concept of predestination. Predestination asks a host of questions involving faith and the future, like if God knows everything that's going to happen, how is our life actually up to us? And if God knows that evil is fated to happen, why doesn't he stop it? How much of the future is preordained and how much can we change? These questions were a source of major friction among medieval and Renaissance Christian theologians giving birth to several schools of Protestant thought. The most prominent was John Calvin, who believed that God preordained his chosen people before time began. When the Church of England broke with Catholicism, many within the new Anglican faith took the opportunity to accept these ideas whole cloth, 
for the next three centuries, showing support for strict predestination and other Anglican beliefs was a way to ward off accusations of being a secret Catholic. And you really didn't want to be a Catholic for a lot of English history. Lots of graves. Lots of chills. Which brings us back to today's superstition. If someone walks over the spot where you're going to be buried, you get a sudden chill. If you think about it, that implies that your final resting place has already been determined. It's not a particularly comforting thought. Today's story considers what might happen when you know where your grave is supposed to be and the lengths someone might go to keep their future resting place from being disturbed. Caleb Copeland IV had committed the perfect crime. Now, he would have killed Brent one way or another. Caleb had always hated everything about Brent Kirby. His imported suits and J. Crew haircut, his framed diploma and the way he ended every email with best regards. Caleb would have even hated the font on Brent's nameplate if they hadn't chosen the same one. It was an insult that they were being considered for the same promotion, but that didn't matter now, because Caleb had a genius solution. Anyone can kill a business rival. What Caleb had done required more care. He'd Googled how to bricklay and walled up Brent's bloody, broken body in the Copeland family's above-ground crypt. Many generations of Copelands had been interred within the white stone tomb, tucked away in stone shelves, seemingly a crude precursor to the cadaver drawers you'd see in a modern-day morgue. But he was sure they wouldn't mind the intrusion. Brent wasn't taking up any space they were going to use because it was Caleb's own burial plot that held the evidence. It was a truly foolproof crime, since Caleb was the last of his line. No one would know Brent was there until Caleb was dead and gone. Whatever scandal might come from the discovery, he wouldn't be around to see. Caleb had interred his late colleague in the early hours of a surprisingly warm February morning. It was easy to hide his deed from prying eyes amongst the tightly packed rows of Lafayette Cemetery No. 1. The Garden District of New Orleans never seemed so empty. Caleb stuffed his masonry tools in his gym bag and made his way towards the entrance, following the convenient grid system. While there were many newer graves in Lafayette, they were often installed beside tombs that were hundreds of years old. Ferns and creeping ivy poked from the cracked stone of these more storied resting places. Green, vibrant life amid a town of pale death. It didn't matter much to Caleb, as he'd been coming to the cemetery since he was a very young boy. But it did amuse him to think that the many tourists that strolled through the park would be standing only a few feet from Brent's lifeless corpse. His mind was entirely untroubled as he strolled towards the cemetery exit. He reached the wrought iron gates and pushed them open, internally deliberating which pocket square to wear to his afternoon meeting. As he stepped out into the residential neighborhood, a strange chill crept up his body. 
He ignored the sensation and turned onto Washington Avenue before the feeling struck again. There was a sharp pain in his stomach and what almost felt like a cold breath on his back. Goosebumps formed on his skin. He breathed in and out, trying to steady himself. This was highly irregular. There was no chill in the air, and he certainly wasn't feeling guilty. He dismissed the thought and headed down the avenue. He had a streetcar to catch. It was not long before Caleb had arrived at work. His employer, the Journeyman Oil Company, was situated in a towering high-rise on Poydra Street overlooking the mighty Mississippi. Caleb hadn't ever actually needed a job at all. There was more than enough inheritance to cover his needs, unless he decided to buy a private island or something. But he liked having something to keep him occupied. His rise at Journeyman made him the first Copeland in generations to make it on his own. Or, at least, it was about to. Now that Brent and his annoying email signature were out of the way, Caleb's boss, Mr. Landry, was milling about in the conference room with his new assistant, a nice blonde thing who had probably been Miss Cornhusk or something in her hometown. Landry threw his arms wide in greeting. Caleb, my boy, early as always, I'm beginning to think you don't sleep. Caleb smiled back as the other executives and engineers filed in. Not if I don't have to, sir. Shall we get started? Caleb began his presentation on the management of risk in low-income, high-yield oil and natural gas deposits in the bayou. He was explaining how he'd maneuvered around local governments to handle permits when he felt that horrible chill again. It shook his whole body, running up and down his spine like an enormous rat. He paused to collect himself. The empty air in the room particularly stifling as everyone shuffled their papers or, not so subtly, glanced at their phones. Caleb wondered what sorts of diseases the dead could give to the living. Brent seemed like one of those people who didn't get enough vitamins. Caleb set his jaw and focused on his notes, even as his vision swam in and out of focus. He continued, we have been able to acquire easily exploitable tracts of land from subsistence, but the shiver came again. Caleb lost his place. He hated losing his place, and he hated looking foolish, and he hated Brent for managing to cause both from beyond the grave. No, he wouldn't allow it. Not when he was so close. He summoned his rehearsed professional smile, which Miss Cornhusk kindly returned. Confidence renewed, he forged ahead. The shivers left him alone. For now. As the meeting concluded, Landry approached Caleb. Caleb expected him to offer some praise or commendation for his work, but all he got was a question. Have you seen Brent? Usually, I at least tell Maggie here that I'm going golfing before I just take off, don't I? He slapped Caleb on the back. The shiver ran up Caleb's spine again, but he managed to force an innocent-natured shrug. Landry gave him a sidelong glance of concern. Oh, don't worry, Copeland. I know you don't vacation. Your loss is our gain. Caleb offered a rehearsed laugh. He made sure to play it casual. I know Brent had his interview today for the VP position. Maybe he got cold feet. 
Landry clapped Caleb on the back again. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice for you? Come on, Mags. And he promptly disappeared with his assistant in tow. Caleb reminded himself that it might take a few days for people to accept that Brent was no longer a factor and push through the rest of his workday. For once, he needed to only work two hours of overtime. He had a date. Kara was from Galveston or Shreveport or maybe Mobile. Wait, maybe her name was pronounced Kara. It didn't really matter. Caleb was just going to avoid saying it. They talked about their lives in cursory detail over wine and Vietnamese fusion. Caleb was already mentally checking Bumble again when Kara shivered. It was smaller than his shakes had been earlier in the day, but still visible. Kara took his curiosity as a look of concern, placing her hand on his to comfort him. Oh, don't worry, darling. Someone just walked over my grave is all. It was an odd expression, so Caleb had to ask, trying to keep any notes of city boy judginess to a minimum. Walking over your grave? I've never heard that. Where does it come from? Kara laughed and fiddled with her hair. <laughs> Not sure. I just know we used to say that when you got shivers, it meant a possum was clambering over your family plot. But possums are kind of nasty things, and I think just saying someone feels more sophisticated. The wheels of Caleb's mind were turning, but he hid it well. He raised his glass to her with a practiced, roguish smile. You are plenty sophisticated, Miss Kara. He turned out to have guessed the right pronunciation of Kara. He invited her home with him, went through the usual dance, and soon his alibi was sleeping soundly in his bed. Then he headed out into the night. It would be just a quick check of the tomb to make sure his chills weren't caused by someone discovering his work. There was no reason for it to be disturbed. Brent was walled up and grounds management only worked on this row of graves on Thursdays, a full week from now. Caleb expected to shiver as he picked the lock to the wrought iron gates and stepped into the graveyard itself. He was working hard to convince himself it was only a matter of a surprise cold front moving in from the river. But the air stayed heavy, humid, and warm. Caleb should have felt relief as he turned the corner onto the road that held his family tomb and saw nothing. But that shiver moved up and down his spine again. He glanced around, his eyes darting from one dark corner to another. But the world around him was still. Even the surrounding neighborhood was eerily silent. The row seemed to extend on forever into the distance, a black void lined by intricate but crumbling stone boxes. The ivy that grew from the cracks in the bricks crawled forward to meet him, threatening to consume the path. The wind whistled as he approached the Copeland tomb, kicking up the vegetation and dying leaves. As the breeze died, he heard another sound. A slight but insistent scratching coming from within the tomb. That didn't make sense. Caleb had split Brent's head open. The man's eye had rolled out of his head like a cheap ping pong ball. This was not a coma is not death situation. Yet the scratching 
continued. That horrible shiver crept up Caleb's spine, tightening his whole body and leaving cold static on his skin. Then the bricks began to move. They shifted ever so slightly, the mortar slowly chipping away from the inside. He froze, animal instincts screaming at him to get away. Caleb had never felt the urge to run before, and he hated it with every fiber of his being. So he rushed forward instead, clawing at the bricks to open them faster. He'd killed Brent once, he'd do it again if he had to. Then he would go back to his perfect life and his perfect new job and everything would be perfect. His hands were shaking, the shivers mounted, almost forcing him into convulsions. One of his fingernails tore off as he scrabbled at the brick, but he winced and carried on, finding a grip on the rough stones. Finally, one grey brick fell free, tumbling away into the fern and ivy cover. He heard something stirring in the back of the tomb, something large. He called out for the thing to reveal itself and pushed on the bricks again. More of them tumbled away and the moonlight spilled into the doorway, revealing one bloodshot eye. Something grabbed him and pulled him headfirst into the darkness. Caleb woke up, covered in sweat and trembling. He was not accustomed to nightmares, so it took a moment for reality to reassert itself. He had been to the cemetery and back before getting into bed. The grave had been undisturbed, silent. No scratching, no staring undead eye. Someone had grabbed him, though. It was Kara, squeezing his chest in concern. She placed her forehead against his cheek. It's just a dream, darling. You're safe. Caleb felt a wave of visceral anger that he hadn't experienced since Brent was alive. He hated any notion of vulnerability, but especially his own. But Kara was his alibi, so he had to go along with it. He thanked her for her concern and let her rock him like an overlarge teddy bear as he faked going back to sleep. As her voice faded into a sleepy mumble, Caleb's path forward coalesced in his mind. He could not go on like this, losing control of his body and mind. He needed to open Brent's grave. For real this time. Coming up, Caleb's perfect crime begins to unravel. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Caleb brought different supplies the next time he went to the cemetery. He held his gym bag close to his chest to muffle the sound as he made his way through the rows of gravestones. He knew Brent was dead. He'd put an axe through the man's face. 
Yet Caleb had been haunted by strange shivers, a sign that, as his not-girlfriend carer put it, someone was walking over his grave. It was technically impossible to walk over Caleb's grave. He had had a designated spot within the Copeland family crypt since he was born, above ground with the many other New Orleanians who didn't want their coffins to float away in a flood. But these shivers, along with this horrible dream, had convinced him that the best thing for his mental health would be to take this delusion as far as it could go. If his mind was being unreliable, perhaps he could shock it back to its usual cold and calculating state. So he found himself walking through the darkness of Lafayette Cemetery with the intention of disinterring his corporate rival just so he could be sure once and for all that Brent was absolutely, positively dead. That YouTube video on masonry came in handy again as Caleb quickly but carefully removed the bricks to his family crypt. He stepped inside, clicking on his flashlight only when he was absolutely sure he was far enough into the tomb to not be seen. Caleb had hoped that the crypt being airtight would help with the smell, but it was day three of decomposition, so he couldn't be too upset with Brent for bloating and giving off a strange scent of ammonia. He was definitely dead. But would Caleb's now nightmare-prone mind accept that? He had to be sure. So he removed a wooden stake from his gym bag and pounded it through Brent's heart. The fluids seeped out into the garbage bag he'd left beneath the body, the acrid stench becoming almost overwhelming. That seemed like a good start. Caleb stared at the gooey wound, concentrating on the idea that Brent was out of his way forever. But he still felt odd, so he grabbed another stake and pounded it through Brent's already mangled eye socket. Grey and green fluid spurted. Caleb dodged it elegantly and continued his work. He scattered some holy water he'd stolen from a nearby church and pushed Brent's body back into the darkness. He lined the floor with salt, then exited the crypt and walled it up again. Surely this would be enough. He hoisted the gym bag on his back and headed for the entrance. He braced for a chill as he passed through the gates, but all he felt was the warm breeze. It had been a little silly, but he'd done it. Now his considerable imagination would have to find somewhere else to play. He showered and changed before heading off to work early. Landry greeted him at his office door. Morning, Copeland. Time for a chat. Caleb managed to contain his excitement as he nodded and indicated for his superior to enter his office. Landry walked over to the window, gazing out at the river below. You know, I always thought you were right for this promotion, but it feels strange to pass over Brent when he's missing. Caleb felt that horrible chill again. It nearly sabotaged the look of surprise and horror he'd whipped up just for this occasion. Missing, he said. Landry ran his hand through his salt and pepper hair. Missing, yes. Turns out he told a friend they could meet for drinks and never showed up. He packed a bag and left. The luggage trick 
was an especially ingenious move on Caleb's part if he did say so himself. He stroked his chin and looked up as if considering this mystery intently. I imagine he was overwhelmed by the work he was facing here and decided to seek out new pastures. But he's a hell of an executive. It's a real shame. Landry nodded gravely. It really is. How are you doing, Copeland? <laughs> Coping? <laughs> Caleb echoed Landry's laugh to indicate his comfort. <laughs> yes, of course. But then, he shivered. Landry looked at him. You sure? Caleb swallowed. Of course. Then he shivered again. Landry cocked his head a little. You know, I love your work ethic, Copeland, but you're worrying me. You have a fever? Caleb brought his hand to his head as casually as possible, felt it, then brought it back down. Perfectly fine, sir. Landry shook his head. No, no, you need a break. We can talk about the VP position tomorrow. Caleb tried to insist. Please, sir, I'm perfectly fine. Landry placed his hand on his shoulder. I want you to feel confident about this, Copeland. No worries, no chills. Got it? But Caleb felt colder than he'd ever been. He deflated. Yes, sir. Then he slunk out of the building, not even bothering to give the secretary his usual planned nod. Caleb was terrible at being idle. Unlike his layabout cousins, he always craved stimulation. He was overdue for stimulation, for a challenge, and Brent's rotting corpse was standing in the way. Was it possible his little Van Helsing approach had backfired? Were seeping bodily fluids enough to cause a recurring chill? It was the only rational explanation left, if you accepted Kara's superstition as rational. There was nothing for it. He needed to find another dump site for Brent's body and leave his grave for himself. Caleb picked a lock to the cemetery gates a few hours earlier than usual, around midnight, but he was impatient. He had lots of work to do. His bag was stuffed with masonry and cleaning supplies, along with several very large industrial plastic bags. He didn't want Brent leaking as he made his way to the car. He was practically a professional mason at this point, so the bricks came down easily. Brent's body glistened under his flashlight thanks to its now viscous surface. Caleb wrapped another garbage bag around the gooey corpse. He duct taped it within an inch of its life, then placed it quietly on the other side of the crypt as he went to work with his cleaning products. Caleb was a lot less accomplished at cleaning than he was now at masonry, so it took far longer than he intended. The fluid had stuck to the inside of the long stone cavity, so Caleb had to climb halfway in, legs dangling as he reached for the back with all his might. He was in this precarious position when he felt the chill again. He bumped his head on the top of the container and stifled a groan as he listened for the sound of any intruder. It shouldn't count if you were disturbing your own grave, should it? Caleb sat, frozen, listening intently for what felt like centuries. But there was no sound, only the hollow wind in the crypt. 
so he carefully wiggled out of his personal vault, he dusted himself off and slid it shut. While finding a new and ultimately less inspired place to dump Brent had been inconvenient, Caleb was beginning to feel that he didn't want to be back at his grave until he was, well, dead. He hoisted the body on his back and clicked off his flashlight. The hardest part of this was going to be the quick bricklaying once he dashed out to his car to hide the body, then come back. But as he exited the crypt, a bright light blinded him. A stern voice issued through a megaphone, telling him to drop the body. A flash of anger raced through Caleb's body. He couldn't run, could he? Maybe lose the cops in the tombstones? No, that would be even more embarrassing, more suspicious. And even if he escaped, he'd never get his promotion. He lowered Brent's body to the ivy-covered ground and put his hands in the air. A straight-backed policewoman placed handcuffs on him and marched him down the row and towards the entrance. The flashes of a police cruiser's blue and red lights were visible over the white and grey tombs. Caleb wanted to ask how they'd caught him. He wanted to ask how they knew. But he knew in his heart. He knew he shouldn't have come back. He knew he should have let it go. He'd ruined the perfect part of his perfect crime. Another shiver ran through him. As they turned him away from the row that held his family crypt, he saw something on the tomb's stone roof. A very large, very round possum was trundling along the incline, followed by nine little possums. They chirped and chittered as they went along, ambling along the roofline. Right above Caleb's grave. If you, at some point, feel a chill like Caleb, know that it's not necessarily a person walking over your grave. In parts of the US, it's sometimes said to be a goose or a rabbit, and in many rural areas, people are inclined to blame possums. But no matter who's doing the walking, the unsettling truth remains. That your final resting place is already determined right at this very moment. It's no fun to imagine yourself as worm food. We feel the urge to prevent it, even when we know it's impossible. And yet, there is power in naming the cause of that shivering sensation, as there is with any monster. We can dismiss the spike in adrenaline, the chill running up our spine with one quickly muttered saying, Yes, I will die. Let's move on. Many superstitions are about courting good luck or avoiding misfortune, even death. But saying, someone walked over my grave, acknowledges death and even implicitly confronts it. It's a ward against danger that involves walking straight into the lion's mouth. So have a little courage, speculate about that grave proudly, because we all have one in our future, whether we acknowledge it or not. Better to at least have the illusion of control or foreknowledge. Positive thinking can go a long way. And you don't want to worry yourself to an early grave.
Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Lil Dorita and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden.